Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew, chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. Okay, so I just want to introduce uh, Steve Hong to everybody. Um, He's a pastor and physician doctor, uh, Dr. Steve Hong. Um, He's a close friend of many people here. Uh, He has been a long-time attender at New Hope Fellowship. Um, I believe he headed up the youth group at one time, and he was a mission and outreach uh, lead, uh, as well as um, he's poured in countless hours um, into uh, men's groups, one in particular, Roman study, that was instrumental uh, in myself becoming Christian. Um, He is a man that... um, that really lives for God, not only in what he says, but how he lives his life. Um, he uh, graduated seminary in Trinity Divinity School in Chicago, and um, he graduated medical school here at New York Medical College. So any medical students, if you want to speak to him, uh, please do so. Uh, then he's fellowship trained in infectious disease, uh, and he um, is living part-time in uh, Boston whilst he worked for Tufts Medical Center as an infectious disease consultant. Uh, And then he lives part of the year in Namibia, uh, which is the place that uh, the missions team went to and spent time with. So he's our main contact person uh, in Africa. Uh, He is an HIV expert uh, that uh, goes back and forth from Namibia to Tufts. Um, And he works for WHO, CDC, and uh, so he has his hat in many different arenas. So... I think we are uh, greatly honored and privileged uh, to be able to call him a member of our church, a brother in Christ, and we, we're greatly honored to have him uh, preach the word here uh, today. So, Steve, you can come up. Heavenly Father, we just want to pray as we come to you t- um, this afternoon, Lord, that you would speak. Speak, O oh Lord, and give us minds and hearts that are open. Give us, make our hearts good soil. This afternoon, Lord God, I pray that it would not be uh, a message from me, but Lord, it would be a message from you. So open up our hearts, Father, and give us, Lord, a, a, a word from you that we might be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As many of you know, a team of short-term missionaries from New Hope Fellowship came to Namibia last year and led a Bible camp for youth at a little town called Swakopmund. It's a coastal town in Namibia that God blessed tremendously. We had been praying months that God would open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that we wouldn't be able to contain it, and that's what he did. And so many of you were, here, were there, and we were blessed to be part of that. Now, I'm grateful for New Hope and the partnership that... We have entered into really together with, to further the, the kingdom of God in Namibia and with a vision of a youth movement 
in Namibia amongst the poorest of the poor in Namibia. Now, if, if some of you haven't heard of Namibia, Namibia is a country in sub-Saharan Africa, and HIV epidemic has ravaged the country. And if you look at some of the Christian statistics, and you look it up, um, what is it, joshuaproject.org, you see this, it says 87.6% professing Christians. You know, when I start, first started to go to Namibia, I thought, 87.6% professing Christians, that's awesome. I, why do we need to go there? And, that, you know, because of the early years, I was like, I'll go here, do some HIV work, I won't go back again, because they don't need me. But as I stayed there longer and longer, I realized what the state of Christianity in Namibia really was. It's really a mile wide and like a centimeter deep. It's kind of like what Jesus talks about, the shallow soil. That puts it perfectly. Some fell on rocky places, the seed, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plant was scorched and they withered because there was no root. That's what the gospel in Namibia is like. Can you imagine a place where 86.7% professing Christians and you have to live behind an electric fence? Or else, if the power goes off, then people are going to come in and rob you. It's, a, it's an everyday kind of thing. Can you imagine a country, 87.6% professing Christians, where most children grow up without a father? I would say the majority of the children grow up not having a dad because fathers out with many other women. And HIV, that's, and you can tell why HIV has ravaged the country where there are so many orphans. A country where 87.6% professing Christians and the gospel says, if you believe in Jesus, God will heal you of all your diseases, and then if you give enough money, then God will give you riches. That's the exact gospel that's preached in Namibia and much of sub-Saharan Africa as well, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. So that's the 87.6% professing Christians in Namibia. And then I, so I was convicted. This is where the gospel needs to come. And God needs to come, and the gospel needs to come in depth and to move and to change the society with revival. So we have a vision for Namibia, and it's partnered with you, New Hope Fellowship. And the vision is for a youth movement to start young, and that the gospel will be planted deeply in their hearts, And it would not be a shallow soil, but that it would be a good soil. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. And that's our vision for Namibia as we move forward together. Today, my purpose is not really to share about Namibia. My purpose is to share with you the driving force behind what we do in Namibia. It's not to put up pictures up of here of poor children without clothing and without food to make you feel guilty because you have more money than them and everything that you need. Because I have everything that I would ever need as well. It's not to put up stats about orphans because of the HIV epidemic so you feel bad. It's not to talk about the statistics of gender-based violence. And all these things are true in Namibia. Gender-based violence is out of control. And the number of orphans is out of control, but that's not my purpose. My purpose is I'm going to share with you a text that has taken hold of me in 1996 
when I was in, in college and never let go of me. I'm not saying that I never let go of this text. I'm saying it's a text that never let go of me. Philippians chapter 3, 12 says, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. So the text took hold of of him. And that's the same. This is a text that took hold of me. And I want to share it with you because God has so united himself with his word that if his word takes hold of you, in essence, it's God who is taking hold of you. And this word took hold of me and God took hold of me. And, you know, I won't pretend that I'm some holy person that goes off to another country to spread the gospel as a missionary. That's not who I am. And when people refer to me as a missionary, I kind of cringe because it's not what I think of myself. In fact, I think it hurts the gospel, the cause of the gospel, to think of missionaries that way at all. These holy people who leave everything behind and go off somewhere to a far-off country and preach the gospel and suffer. Because it makes us think that these missionaries are holy over here, and, well, I'm kind of an ordinary person over here, and I'll just stay home. So it hurts the gospel to think of missionaries that way. I think it comes, comes down to ordinary people who are being used in a mighty way by an extraordinary and holy God. I think what it comes down to in all these missionary lives, and if you ask them, they would probably give you the same story, is that it comes down to being taken hold of by a text in the Bible that would never let them go. So I'm asking you today, do you have a text like that that took hold of you and would never let you go? And that's what I'm going to share with you today. No matter how much I struggle in my life, and I've struggled a lot, how much I've sinned in my life, and I've sinned enough in my life, and how much I backslid it in my life, and yes, I backslid in a lot. How much I get sidetracked in my life, many sidetracks. This text always brings me back because it's taken hold of me. Let's, let's read it. It's up there. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus died and was risen and he was going to leave his disciples soon. And he was going back to the Father in heaven. And the last thing that he left with them is this great commission in Matthew. So the first question I want to ask the text is, who is this great commission for? Who was it written for? Look at verse 16 to 18. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and he said. So answer, it's for the eleven. Jesus was speaking to the eleven disciples and giving them the great commission. Now look at the text there. They're in the mountain. This is reminiscent of God's commission to Moses. Remember that? And this is intentional by Matthew. To free his people from slavery. Moses was there with the burning bush. God was there in all glory and commissioning Jesus from the mountain of God. Go and free my people from slavery to Egypt. And Matthew is intentionally making that illusion. That now, as the 11 disciples are there, Jesus is there and giving this great commission. Go as my church, as my representative, 
and free my people from slavery to sin. I think we should read it that way. This is God's message for you on your mountaintop. That, you, that he wants, he's calling you and commissioning you to free his people all over the world from slavery to sin. So they worshipped him, it says, the text says. So they worshipped Jesus, and the Bible never has anyone being worshipped besides God. So obviously we know that Jesus is re- being referred to as the God of Moses, Yahweh, the God who appeared to Moses, and this is Jesus Christ. And we see, but some doubted. That's interesting. The 11 are there. They're seeing Jesus risen again. And they, some are doubting? I mean, he's right before you. Some of us think, if we saw Jesus alive, we would not doubt. But they're doubting. That's very interesting. So who is this commission for? Number one, the commission is to, to the disciples who worship him. And to Christian. Disciple is equal to saying Christian, synonym for Christian. So it's for Christians who worship him. Is it for us today? Some people might want to get out of this commission and say, well, the, the, the Great Commission was for those people at that time, but not for us today. But you know what? He says to the very end of the age, has that come about? To all nations, has that come about? Has it happened yet? Has it been fulfilled? No, it's not been fulfilled. And he also says, go and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So if that's the case, then one of the commands must be to go and make disciples of all nations. So no, this has not been fulfilled, and this commission is for all Christians today who worship God. The second type of people it's for is for those who doubt. The commission is for disciples who have doubts. Now that little phrase, some doubted, is so encouraging to me. Because some people might say, you know what? I'm a doubter, I'm sitting here in my pew, and you know, I don't even know if Jesus is the true God. I don't know, I have doubts. Yes, I kind of believe, but part of me doesn't believe. You know what? That commission is for those super-Christians who have strong faith and do not doubt. But that's not how Jesus does it here. He took a look at the eleven, and some were doubting. They didn't, is this really Jesus? And Jesus gave the great commission to them. So if you're sitting here and you're doubting, in your life you have doubts, Jesus gives a great commission to you. So it's for us, it's for all of us. So let that be the starting point. I'm going to ask the, the text three questions. Number one, why should we obey the great commission? Number one. Number two, what is the essence of the great commission? I don't have time to go over every command, but what's the essence of the great commission? And number three, how will we fulfill the great commission in our lives? Bringing that down to home. So number one, why should we obey this great commission to go and make disciples of all nations? Verse 18, 19, read with me. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So you could kind of say it. Go and make disciples of all nations because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the answer, why we should obey the Great Commission, is because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and it's been given to him. And someone may say, well, that's very easy. Jesus, that just means he's king, and whatever he says, you need to do. That's what it means. But you know, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus has given all authority in heaven and on earth now. So now go. It's it's not saying that Christ had no authority beforehand. 
You know, and before this time, it's not that Jesus didn't have authority. Now he's given authority. That's not what it's saying. Because we know that Jesus spoke with authority. Matthew 7, 28, 29. No one spoke like this man with such authority. He has authority over nature. Remember when the storm was brewing, the huge mega storm? And he just said, be quiet. And then it was a great calm. He has incredible authority over nature, Matthew 5, 26, 27. He has authority over disease and sickness, Matthew 4, 23. Jesus healed every disease. There was not one that he couldn't heal. Every disease. He has authority over demons, Matthew 4, 24. He has authority over sin in Matthew 9, 6. So that you may know that I, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Get up, rise up, and walk. And he rose He has authority over sin. He has authority over death. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. He has incredible authority before he was given all authority here. So what is this all authority? What is he talking about? Turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 to 7. You can see previously Jesus said this. These 12 in the the same book earlier on, about 18 chapters before. These 12, the 12 disciples, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. No, 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 no. Just go to the house of Israel. And now in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go to all nations. Jesus, what do you, which one do you want? Do you want us to go to the Gentiles or do you not want us to go to the Gentiles? Why do you change your mind here? Explicitly, don't go there. He didn't just leave it out. He said, don't go. And now he says, go everywhere to the Gentiles, all nations. What happened in between? Do you know? Anyone know what happened in between? Let's make it interactive. Anyone know what happened between Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 28? He died on the cross. When I speak to the kids in Havana, in Namibia, I have to have a dialogue with them. In the U.S., it's not normal, right? (laughs) But he died on the cross in between, and he rose again. So something happened between. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You know what that's saying in Revelation? It's be- Jesus is worthy. Why is he worthy? Why does he have authority? Because You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and tongue. So because Jesus died on the cross, and he paid for every tribe and language and tongue, therefore he has authority over every tribe and language and tongue. That's what the authority is that he's been given. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Who being in very nature God, that's Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You get that? Because he humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him all authority on heaven and on earth. That's the same, same thought process is going on here. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We don't see that now, do we? We go into our workplaces and people spit on the name of Jesus. People malign him. People ignore Jesus. He's not relevant to society today. But you know what? You know what gives me so much comfort from these verses? That it, for certain, there will be a day when Jesus' name will be exalted. And, he, and every knee will bow down before the King of Kings, without exception. It will be us in the church who are doing it with joy, or it will be people who have cursed Jesus' name, and they will be forced to bow their knee to him. Because Jesus has all authority. He's won the battle. His mission cannot fail. Have you read the book of Acts through? Do you remember, if you read the book of Acts through, what you notice is that the plot, the gospel, and the word of God is moving forward with the power and sovereignty of God. And no matter what opposition there is, no matter what persecution there is, no matter what slander there is, it's moving forward with the sovereign power. It cannot fail. There's nothing that anyone can do to stop it. And then when the gospel is preached to all nations, the end will come. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It can't be clearer than that. This gospel will be proclaimed to all nations, and then the end will come. It will be finished. So what is Jesus saying here in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. What are you saying here is that I have purchased and won the victory. It's finished. I've won. The end is secure, and it's time for you to join my side. That's what he's saying. The mission is going to finish. You can either get on board and enjoy the ride and the victory, or you can sit on the sideline and waste your life. That's what he's saying. It is a certainty. It's like D-Day. You know, the, the, in, at Normandy, World War II? It's like when a country, there's a war being waged for many years, and finally the decisive victory has been won. The fighting doesn't stop. You know who's going to win because the decisive victory is done, but there's guerrilla warfare going on, and there's still casualties. But you know who's going to win because the decisive victory has been fought. But you know, at that point, you're not going to suddenly jump sides. You lost. No one's going to take you on the right side. You're not going to say, oh, we lost, now I want to join the right side. But you know what? The commander-in-chief of the Lord's army is Jesus Christ. says, I won. You can join my side. I've already won the decisive victory on the cross. 
I'm giving you time. You can join the winning side. That's amazing to me when I see that. We all know the frustration of working hard, devoting our time and our energies to some project or some cause, and having it all come to nothing if it fails. And we all have this incredible ability to commit ourselves to something, good or bad results. It might work out, it might not work out. But can you commit yourself to something that there is absolute certainty of victory? Would you be able to, willing to give up your whole life to something that is sure and there's victory and has the greatest rewards? That's what Jesus is asking you to do in the Great Commission. Finally, there's no neutrality here. There is no spiritual Switzerland okay, in this Great Commission. You cannot be neutral. You are either on Jesus' side or you're on the enemy's side. He does not leave any room for in-between. Number two. So number one, why should we obey the Great Commission? Because the authority of Christ assures us of victory. Number two, what is the essence of the Great Commission? What is the essence? Now, I say it that way because, let's read it, verse 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Traditionally, the way that this is interpreted, and the way that I interpreted it for 20 years, is that the main verb, there's one main verb, is make disciples. And the other three verbs there are ing, participial words. So going, make disciples. Going, baptizing, teaching. All kind of modifying, go, uh, make disciples. So I would preach this for 20 years and say, the main command is make disciples. I'm not going to do that today because I was convicted in another way. Because, you know, if you look at that verse, it says, go, therefore, and make disciples. So that first going is put before even the main verb. And in Greek, the word order matters. If you put things first, it's emphasizing it. So what I see here, and many Greek scholars confer with this, is that the placement of the participle going gives it an imperative force, an emphasis. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So this is an important word. Why is going so important? Because if you remember in the Old Testament, go, going, nobody told them to go anywhere. God made a promise to Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And how were they blessed? How were people blessed from Israel? Israel would stay in Jerusalem, and all the other nations would kind of come in and be blessed by them. So it was what's called a centripetal, centripetal blessing, okay, or ministry. We're in Israel, everyone comes to us. That's how it was. You don't go out. In the Old Testament, they don't go out. But now Jesus is changing everything, and he says, this is not a centripetal ministry anymore. It's a centrifugal ministry. Now it's going out. It's now it's not everybody's coming to you. You are going to all nations. Now the, the New Testament church took a little coaxing to, to this command. Because if you read in Acts, what you, you find is that even though Jesus commanded them to go out, they didn't go out. They were all sitting around in Jerusalem with their church. It, and what did God do? Stephen the martyr, and then 
persecution, and then God scattered them all around. They took a little coaxing, and God had to bring persecution to the church for them to be scattered and to go. So how do I apply this to my life? And I was thinking about how does, does this apply? Christians are not called to just live their own life, go to work, raise their family, you know, go to church, live a good life, very moral, upstanding life. And yeah, if there's people who come to my church or people come to my family or I rub into at work and if they come and they get to know me, they get blessed because I know the gospel, I know Jesus. That's a centripetal kind of ministry, isn't it? Is that our mindset? I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to have my relationship with Jesus. And then people who, uh, you know, I get to know at work or at school, if they get to know me, that's great, because then they can get the gospel. That's living in the old covenant times. Or is your life more like, you know, I'm praying for these people, and I'm intentional. I'm looking at these people out there, and I'm, I'm rearranging my life. And I'm, I'm strategizing so that I can go and reach out to them. I'm rearranging my schedule. I'm rearranging my time. I'm moving where I live. I'm doing everything that I can, that I can be intentional. And I can be not a centripetal kind of person, but a centrifugal kind of person. I'm going to be going, not asking everybody to come to me so they can get blessed. So I challenge you. And this was challenging for me because I felt like a lot of times I feel like, yeah, if I just live my life and I'm faithful to God, then people, God will bring people into my life and they'll get to know Jesus. But no, that's living in the old covenant times. I think God's command here is go. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You notice that it doesn't say go to Namibia or go to Tanzania. Or go. It doesn't say that. It just says go. So it's very vague. So it, it kind of leaves it to you and, and to God. But you still need to go. Okay? wherever you live, to go and live a centrifugal type of life. Secondly, going also means leaving your comforts. Going means you can't stay where you are. If you were going to stay at home today and you had to go through the snow and to get here, it's hard and you're not comfortable. You're cold. You have to shovel. Well, I didn't have to shovel. Alex shoveled my car, car out. But it's hard. You have to leave. It's not comfortable. Going means you can't stay where you are. Let's read Hebrews chapter 13, 12 to 14. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we are looking for the city that is to come. What a great verse. When I was in um, seminary, I heard a John Piper sermon. He, he preached a sermon on Hebrews that changed my life. And he preached on this passage, and he said from this passage, Christians, in his like John Piper way, Christians move towards need and not comfort. That simple phrase changed everything, how I think about life. Christians move towards need and not comfort. That's what he said. And this is hard. It's a challenge for me because if you ask Sayan, she'll confer that I'm probably one of the most comfort-seeking people I know. And maybe some of you feel that way too. 
You know yourself. You know that you want to seek comfort. You don't want to go get bothered. You don't want your schedule to be messed up. And we all seek our own comfort. But, so this, this text is challenging for me. When there's a, a person in need, am I going to forego my comforts and am I going to go and reach out to them? Am I going to leave my city? Am I going to leave my country? Am I going to go across the hallway? Am I going to go across the street? Whatever going may mean for you, God calls you to go so that you can meet needs and not your own comfort. The Apostle Paul in Acts is quintessential example of moving towards suffering, needs, and pain again and again and not seeking after his comfort. You see it in Acts. I love the book of Acts. You see Paul, he goes into a city and he's beaten up, he's stoned, he's spit upon. So he kind of wipes off the dust of the city. He goes to another town. He gets spit upon, he gets persecuted, he gets thrown into jail. Then he wipes off the dust, he goes to the next one. Again and again and again, he's getting punished for the gospel. And look at this, Acts 21, 11 to 14. I love this passage. And coming to us, he, Agabus, he's a prophet in the church, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Can you imagine that happening to you? (laughs) When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul, please don't go. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, so they kept trying to persuade, Paul, don't go, don't go. You're going to get tortured and and you're going to get locked up. They couldn't persuade him. We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Is that your heart like Paul? I want my heart to be like that. It's not like that. But I pray that it would someday become more and more like that. And in case you're tempted to say that's because he's an apostle, I'm not an apostle. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, this is a call of the Great Commission. Go. Therefore, go. Move towards need and not your comfort. Go and seek out to help those who need Jesus Christ whether it be across the, the, the ocean or whether it be across your street. Finally, how will we fulfill the Great Commission? Third, third and last question. The promise of Christ's presence. Let's read verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do we get the resources to go? I asked this to myself all the time because I am a comfort-seeking person. How do I get the resources to go and do the thing that hurts and do the things I don't want to do? Jesus says, And behold, 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. He gives us a promise. He says, I promise you, I'll be with you. Through promises, we gain the resources to move towards needs and not comfort. Promises that God has something far greater in store for us. Hebrews 13, 14, which you looked at before. Go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. These comforts, they promise us things. They promise us comfort, happiness. And God comes over here and says, No, turn your back on those things and go towards need and not comfort. And I promise you greater things. I promise you much greater things. So what is the promise in this verse? And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I love this. Even that word, behold. He says, behold, an angel. That word behold is saying something great is coming. Behold. Behold, I will be with you. The great promise, I'll be with you. That's coming. What is the promise? The promise is his presence. I'll be with you always to the very end. You get that? It's not just, I will be with you all the way to the end of time. He says, I will be with you always, every day. I will be with you every day, always to the very end of the age. So it's depth and it's a breadth. It's both. That reminded me of Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy, the, the breadth, the length, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, the depth. So that's what Christ's presence is, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. C.S. Lewis gave this quote that I first heard in college that was like the, my favorite quote ever. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You know, when we were at the youth camp at, in the sea at Swakopmund, the theme of the youth camp was, where is your treasure? And there was a big banner, where is your treasure? And that came from Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we, you know, these kids from our youth group, they live in a, in a slum in Windhoek, Namibia. And it's one of the poorest probably in the world. And they live in these little huts made of tin, foil kind of thing. And it's all dust everywhere. They're sitting there playing in their mud piles. When we went to them, we said, hey, do you guys want to go to Swakopmund with us for four days for a camp? You know, those guys had never seen the sea. They don't even, cannot even imagine what an ocean is. What is a sea? What is that like? It didn't take much. You know, they didn't say, oh, you know what? 
Pastor Steve, we don't want to go. You know, we have a lot of schoolwork to do. We're busy. We don't want to go. And you know, I, I like my mud here. I'm building something. I don't want to go. What if someone takes my mud away? It's not what they said. They were rejoicing. Yes, we want to go to Swakopman. That's where we want to go. And they even started saving money. Out of nothing, they're saving money so that they could go. And when they were there, you should have seen the look on their face. They're jumping in the ocean with their clothes on. It's cold water. It wasn't summer. It was ice cold. And they're jumping, (laughs) flipping into the water with fully clothed. And then we were driving back on the bus, and this little boy had found a glass jar and he put, the, he put the sand in there in the water because he wanted to take it home. And they're rejoicing because they saw the sea. And they didn't say, I don't want to go there. Because, you know, I don't believe you. I don't think there's a sea. I've never seen the sea. So my question is you, to you is, do you trust God's word for you? That he has a holiday at the sea for you? Or do you just want to play in your mud pies? There's a little boy in my Bible study. His name is Patmos. I used to ask him, you know, what, what shall we pray for you? And he said, I said, what's the, the thing that you want me to pray for you the most? And he just said, you know, they live in Havana. It's called Havana. I just want to leave this Havana life. And it's, it's a nightmare. And so when someone says, let's take you to Swakaman, they don't have to think about it. So if someone tells us, you're going to go to be with Christ, does your heart, you have to think about it? Do I really want to go to be with Christ? I'm so comfortable here. And that's so hard for all of us living in the West. It's so comfortable that we love our mud pies. We love our mud, and we don't want to let it go. The power to let go of this mud is to believe that swak of mud exists for us, and that it's better, much better. Matthew chapter 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. The power to go is to treasure Jesus. If, he, if Jesus is not your treasure in life, the promise of his presence, I will be with you, means nothing. It means nothing to you. When you read that passage, I will be with you, did it do anything for you? Did it mean anything to you? Does it give you hope? Does it give you joy? Does it give you power? Does I will be with you mean nothing to you? If your boss at work says, that annoying boss of yours says, I will be with you, so go do it. Does that give you any strength? I'll be with you every day. <laughs> no. Depresses you. But your friend says, I'll be with you every day. Maybe a little better. Your best friend? Yes, I can endure. Your lover? The one you love the most in this world? And they say, I will be with you every day? You could go anywhere. That's what this promise means. I'll be with you. Jesus, the one that's the treasure of your life, 
says, I will be with you every day until the end of the age. I'm going to finish by reading the sermon that ended the camp, the end of the sermon to the Havana kids. And we said, you become a Christian by faith. And we taught them what faith was. Faith is believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, treasuring Jesus. You are a Christian only if Jesus is your treasure. You are justified, forgiven of your sins. Only if Jesus is your treasure. You will be sanctified and made holy only if Jesus is your treasure. King's kids, that's their, we call them King's kids, my dear children. And today, New Hope Fellowship, where's your treasure? Is Jesus your treasure? Is his presence your treasure in life? Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, would you cleanse us now and forgive us for, forgive me, for a heart that does not treasure you, Lord, above all things. Lord, you said in your word, in Acts, you said to those who would kill you, repent, therefore, and turn back that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God, your presence brings times of refreshing, of revival, of renewal. So, Lord, we pray, if there's anyone in this room who's struggling with darkness, struggle, doubt, unbelief, being chained to sin, being ambivalent about Jesus Christ, Jesus, that you would free them. Help them to repent, turn back, so that their sins would be blotted out and times of refreshing would come from the very presence of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.